Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards, and as you know, this is the podcast, this is the show where we are looking for ideas and inspiration to help us get out of our own way, take that first step, take that next step in whatever we're taking on in our businesses and in our lives. And today's guest is Rich Sheridan. Rich, super excited to have you on, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself here. Well, great to be with you, Brock. Uh, I appreciate that you and I are both early risers, and uh, so I'm happy to be on with you this morning. And I am, uh, first and foremost, uh, an entrepreneur. I started my own business uh, when I was 43 years old, a company here in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Menlo Innovations. And uh, we are a software design and development firm. Uh, we create great software on behalf of our customers, but I think what we're really known for is this idea of bringing joy to the workplace. And I've written a couple of books on that subject, and I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of those today. Yeah, definitely. And it, well, in fact, let, let's start at the very beginning here, Rich. How do you define joy? Like when you think about joy in the workplace, do you have a specific definition around that? We do. Uh, and this is kind of a... a, a all of Menlo thinks about it this way. Uh, joy for us is very purpose-driven, and it is externally focused. Uh, so when we derive joy from those we serve, uh, we look outside ourselves, we look outside our building, we actually look past our traditional stakeholders, the, the customers, the, um, uh, the employees, and even the investors in the company. Uh, we look to the people we serve, the, the people who will one day use the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds, the people who will one day sit down at their computer, fire up some piece of software that our team had hand in creating, and when their response is, I love this. This works exactly the way I expect. It, it makes my life better. That is our definition of joy. Uh, and so uh, looking outside ourselves, using what the Arbinger Institute calls an outward mindset, thinking about those we serve and what would delight them. All right. But but in doing that, you are also looking internally as well, correct? Like your, your workplace is also focused on joy. You know, I don't think you could create joyful outcomes in the world without having joy in the room. Uh, and that can include happiness. Uh, you and I have a mutual friend in the wonderful Alexander Chirol from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, uh, the chief happiness officer in Denmark. And I think happiness is important as well. As well. Uh, but for us, joy is this deeper satisfaction of, of hard work done well together as a team. And we have crafted a culture here at Menlo supported by values and principles and practices, very practical practices that allow us to produce that joy in the world. And again, this is a happy team. You'll hear laughter here. There are dogs here. There are babies here uh, uh, many of the times. Uh, uh, so we have a very unusual culture uh, and, um, uh, and so unusual that thousands of people a year come from all over the world just to see it. They come to visit. They spend anywhere from a day to five days. Uh, with us, uh, learning about what it takes to build an intentionally joyful culture. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and I definitely want to dig in there. You, you know, uh, previous guests, and you may or may not be familiar with them, uh, Dr. Max McEwen, he's a strategy and innovation expert over in the UK. And one of the things that he said when he was on the show was that joy is not a distraction. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that resonated for me. And, but it sounds like you've taken it a step further. It's not just like, you know, joy would be a nice side benefit. It's not something we should stamp out, but actually it's something that we should pursue, something that we should, um, engineer sounds sterile, but, you know, something that we should be very intentional about. Yes. I, no question. I, I think that um, uh, it is an inherently human emotion. And uh, all businesses apparently for decades have been struggling with this concept of disengagement. You know, what, how do we get our people more engaged? You know, the numbers are clear. There's 50, 60, 70 percent of our teams are disengaged at work. Well, think about it. If we could if we could craft a culture where we could flip those statistics around, uh, create active engagement rather than active disengagement, these are the same people we pay who, who know how to get to the office, who've been hired for their skills, their talents, their background, their experience, their education. Yet now they're bringing a different version of themselves to work, a, a more energized version, one with spring in their step and uh, a little bit faster beat in their heart. And they're, they're willing to hunker down and get hard work done together. Imagine the effect this could have on our businesses. You know, th thinking about that, Rich, I, whenever you start a new job um, or, you know, no one ever, as far as I know, no one ever, you know, has that first day heading to work thinking, man, I hope this is a really miserable place. I mean, you know, I, I checked it out. I did a lot of interviews. I, I got online. And near as I can tell, it, it it's really, really bad there. But I, I hope it's even worse than I think it is. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, it's it's a ridiculous thought. We all want to be places. We're all attracted to places where there's happiness, there's joy, there's laughter. You know, as you said, dogs and babies. Um, so what is the serious disconnect like everyone wants a place that isn't miserable. And yeah, so why don't we see more of actively pursuing the joyful and still getting all the work done and all that? But yeah, well, I, I think there's maybe right there, you know, I, I'm going to pick two pieces apart because I think they're both very important and very practical. Um, that first piece where you've almost created a dichotomy in your question of, yeah, we got to get the work done, but we want joy too. No, those two can actually be linked together. And now let me go back to tell you how we do this in that critical moment that you talked about earlier, the first day in a job. You know, if people are honest about most of their jobs, the first day was typically miserable. I don't care how good the company was. You, you came in the front door, uh, somebody wasn't quite sure this was the day you were coming and then they greet you and tell you how glad you're here, but they don't have a cube, an office, a computer, a chair, <laughs> but they're so glad to see you and they're so excited you're here. And those projects you talked about in the interview, well, they've been canceled or put on delay. So you got nothing to do. And, and usually within days, weeks, and certainly months, you become disillusioned. You become that guy or that gal you know, pissing and moaning by the water cooler with everybody else. And the boss who hired you is like, why can't I find good people? Well, you lost the opportunity because you're right. I don't think anybody goes in and sit on the first day of a job and says, you know what? I hope this is a place I can sneak out five minutes early every day. I, I'm, I'm hoping they don't notice I get in a little late that I'm, that I call off work uh, uh, often that I 
turn my monitor away from the door and play free sumo. So that's really the kind of job I'm looking for. Nobody goes into a job like that. I, I think everybody goes in like, and I'm going to crush it this time. I, I, I'm leaving that old place behind and I'm getting in here. And, I, and, and think about the opportunity we lose on that first day. And we've recrafted that entire experience so that you literally plug within minutes of walking in our front door. You're plugged in, you're working, your hands are on a keyboard, you have a pair partner with you because we pair work here. And that person is guiding you through everything you do. We tell you it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't remember how we do this. Can you show me? It's okay to make mistakes early on. And literally from the first day forward, you are joining in the effort. You're not sitting there waiting on the sideline, waiting to be called up onto the field uh, once we've trained you enough and that sort of thing. And I think that's a critical moment uh, that all of us as leaders, as, as people who craft businesses need to think about is how do we grab that excitement that came from the day of the interview? and capture it moving forward from the first day on the job. And most organizations lose that opportunity immediately. Yeah, you know, I uh, laughed to myself a little bit there when you're describing that, Rich, because I, I did start a, a job once then. It, it was a great job and a great company, but yeah, they'd known I'd been coming for a while. I was relocating, me and my family. And, you know, first day I, I get there, get to my office, and my office had been a storage room for old computer monitors. Um, and continued to be a storage room. <laughs> and, you, Don't know, you feel welcome now? <laughs> You're about as valuable as an old computer monitor. That's right. That's right. Uh, we've got the perfect space for you here. Uh, anyway, <laughs> you know, it, it It kind of, so my, my question actually coming from that is, so you when you bring people in, I mean, you've already gone through the interview process. They know about you. They can, you know, find out about Minna. And low innovations online and all that, but what do new hires tend to be most surprised about once they get there and get settled in? I think they're surprised by how tiring the work can be. Uh, we work hard all day long. Uh, I think they're surprised by the the consistency throughout the organization as to how much we believe in the approach we've taken to do what we do. And uh, there's there's kind of uh, there's this interesting flexibility here at Menlo. One of our most famous phrases here is let's run the experiment, which is this idea of taking action versus contemplating action. Um, and so there's there's this spirit of energy that says, let's move ahead, let's try stuff, let's get stuff done. But there's also a disciplined practice here where every, that everyone understands. And the fact that we we work hard all day long. This is a this is one of those vilified open office environments that Harvard recently published a report that said they don't work. It's the dumbest idea ever, and yet people see it working here and they wonder why. And they say, Rich, why does your open office work and it doesn't seem to work anywhere else? And the research is clear that it doesn't. Uh, and and I tell them we didn't build an open office. We built an open culture. Our, our office is a reflection of our deepest health cultural beliefs around collaboration, innovation, teamwork, trust, transparency. And uh, so the, the work here is clear. It's palpable. You know, when you walk in the front door, you're sitting down, you've got a keyboard under your hands, and you've got a pair partner with you who's saying, let's get started. And in that moment, 
there's no there's no letdown. Uh, you know, I think people are surprised by how quickly they can come up to speed, how quickly they become enmeshed in our team, that uh, it feels like they're a Menlonian literally the first day. And our, our whole interview practice, which I'd be happy to talk about if you want, it does not include any questions. Our interview process from the moment you enter our door to the moment we decide to bring you in is not an interview. It is literally an audition. Definitely take us further down that path there, Rich. Want to hear more about that. Yeah. So I decided long ago that the traditional interview practice that I used to use as a hiring manager, A, was something I hated to do. I hated hiring new people. Uh, It was the most painful process I ever went through. Uh, And I would typically make big mistakes and mistakes that would cost me for years because you get in a bad hire and you you can't fire them right away and then you keep them on and all that sort of thing. And of course, I used to think it was them, and then it turned out later I realized, no, it was me. You you suck as a boss, and you, you're building the wrong kind of team and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so what we decided to do is throw out the traditional interview. What we talk about is the traditional interview is the one where two people sit across the table lying to each other for a couple of hours. You know, you tell me you're a great person, you've got the perfect skill set. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're perfect for all the projects that basically are never going to start in the future. Um, And so uh, we said, no, tech with that. Let's make it an audition. Now, remember, we work in pairs, so we're, we're, we're very explicit about that part of our culture. And so in the interview process, we do a mass audition. We bring 30, 40, 50 people in at a time. It's actually a spectator sport. If you're in town and we're doing one of those, you can come in and watch it. Um, and uh, we pair the interview candidates together, one with another. And uh, we have an observer, one of our team members sitting across the table. We give you a task to work on with your pair partner. And we give you very explicit instructions, weird, but explicit. Your job, help the person sitting next to you get a second interview. Make your partner look good. And so right there in the moment of the interview, the first contact with Menlo, we are teaching our culture, the things we hold most dearest. And that is support the person sitting next to you. This is not a doggy dog world here at Menlo. This is not a fear-based organization, which I believe is the thing that uh, uh, kills most corporate cultures is fear, uh, but rather one of support, of transparency, of help. Of, of revealing to another person where you can help them and also revealing to them where you need help. And we do this for 20 minutes and then we switch the pairs. So now you're not paired with, because here at Menlo, we switch the pairs at, at least every five days, maybe more frequently in some cases. So you're going to work with everybody here in this paired work environment. And this is shared keyboard, shared mouse, shared screen. This is that, hey, can you come over here and help me with my work? This is our work done together. So we're teaching this during the interview. We do three pairings during this, what we call an extreme interview. No questions asked. The observer is simply taking notes about what they see. You pair with three different people. Two hours later, we send you all home. Three 20-minute exercises. And then we sit down. If there were 40 of you, there would have been 20 of us observing. And we walk through every single individual and talk about what we saw. And the simple question is, is just, do we invite Brock in for a second interview? And in a second interview, you come in and you work for a day and we pay you. It's, it's kind of the first day on the job, but it's still, we're very clear, it's a one-day interview. And we give you a small stipend and you do work. 
And you come in the door and you sit down with another person. Like I said, minutes in, you're down, keyboard's under your hand. You work in the morning with one Menlonian. You work in the afternoon with another one. You go out to lunch with a few people so you can talk about any questions you might have and that sort of thing. And at the end of that day, the two people you paired with, along with the people who went out to lunch with you and anybody else who interacted with you, they talk again. And they say, do we invite Brock in for a three-week trial? Again, paid. It's an audition. And now you work, you come in, you work for three weeks side by side with at least three Menlonians. We're giving you feedback where we don't expect you to be perfect on day one or even at, at the end of week three. But we do expect you to, to make progress on the things we're giving you feedback on. And so all of this interview process, it's fast. It, it, we're making quick decisions, which I think is one of the, the most insidious parts of most corporate hiring practices. Everybody's like, oh, we can't find people. No, you found them. You just lost them because your interview process is so darn slow. Um, and so, uh, but in this whole way, we're doing work, real work, like client work. This isn't make pretend work. You're actually working on real client work. During this interview process, you're getting paid. You're getting feedback from our team. You're, you're beginning to, to understand our culture. Uh, we are teaching it explicitly. You're beginning to see that we actually believe in what we talk about and what we write about in the books and what we talk about in all these tours and so on. And after a while, you're starting to realize, man, these guys are serious about this stuff. This isn't like, you know, pretend for three weeks you're this kind of culture and then five weeks in you're, you're that kind of culture. Uh, and that consistency, I think, uh, really, really sets the tone for the engagement that lasts for years to come. Oh, that, that's pretty wild. So, so what about, what about jobs, jobs where, where uh, it's not programming where, where, you know, so hiring, I don't know, a CFO or, you know, you know something where you're not kind of hiring several people at once and trying them out. Sounds yeah, different. so uh, we basically pair everybody here. Uh, I always my my mantra lately over the last few years is where there isn't pairing, there is weakness in the in the system and the culture here at Menlo. And so, for example, Emily and Joe. Uh, Emily is our controller official title for her controller, although she's also a project manager, so she she gets involved directly in client projects as well. Joe's one of our senior programmers. Uh, Emily is closing out the books. It's January and she's closing out the books for the year. We're a calendar based year here. And, uh, this is particularly, uh, uh, it's, there's a lot of extra work in closing out a year and, uh, you got to get everything ready for our, our, uh, our accountants to, uh, to do our K ones and, and our tax returns and all that sort of thing. And so Emily said, you know what? I need a pair partner. Joe is very inclined to this stuff. He loves digging into the details of accounting. He, he loves the rules of the tax system and all that sort of thing. He's a researcher from that standpoint. Both of them, by the way, intriguingly have PhDs, which is just hilarious to me. Um, and uh, so Joe and Emily have been pairing the last 10 days, uh, doing all the financials, and they literally sit right next to me. So I've been delightfully, because I'm out in the room with everybody else. There's no gifted C-suite for the CEO. My table is literally bumped up right against where Emily sits. And so uh, so I've just, just been delightfully watching them working through, plowing through receipts and Amex bills and, you know, making sure everything balances out properly and so on. 
and uh, it's been a delightful pairing. So yeah, we use pairing just about everywhere. And where we're not, I keep encouraging us to turn the dial up and start pairing there too. Man, so so much I could ask you about there, Rich. Um, <laughs> yeah. In fact, one of the questions, and this is just kind of a side thought here, is you know you talk about them coming in for for like a three week trial or extended interview, however you want to think about it. Um, what are they like? Not everyone is unemployed when they they apply, so they're, at some point there's they've already made a decision. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we're always very careful about this, Brock. Uh, we don't want to have anybody making a. Uh, an impulsive decision around employment based on our weird model. And so, for example, if somebody says, hey, I really like that one-day trial. I'm going to quit my job, and I know I'm going to make it through three weeks. We'll pull them aside and say, are you crazy? Come on, seriously. I mean, you've got a paying job with benefits. You should stay there. And about the only rational answer we've heard consistently over the years, and we do hear it a lot, is people look at us and say, look, you got to understand, I hate my other job. I just don't want to be there anymore. I think I can make it here, but I understand you guys aren't committing to me, but this will be my launch point. This will be the opportunity where I'm going to plug in here. And if it works great, if it doesn't, you finally given me the inspiration to go find the next job I really want to take. That's an okay answer for us. If others are like, no, no, I really, I mean, I need a paying job every day. If I don't, I lose my house. I can't feed my family and that sort of thing. We're like, you know what? Let's let's figure something else out. Let's figure out a different way to do this. And we're flexible around all this. This is our standard way of doing things. But we've done a version of this for different people for different reasons that still has worked uh, for both parties. But we are very practical when it become when it comes to the to the aspects of life that involve a paycheck. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a, and I forget the name of the Hollywood producer that this was, it's a cognitive bias and it was named for, and I apologize. I can't remember it, but basically the, the essence of his thought was that it's better to fail like everyone else than to succeed differently. And, and he was, he had been on the losing end of, you know, creating movies that were different. They weren't the same. And that was just his observation. The people will pull behind you if you're failing, as long as you're doing it like everyone else. But, you know, as soon as you do something different, even if it's successful, you know, that's when they start throwing the rocks. And what, what has been some of the resistance that you have encountered or faced either from, you know, other business owners or even employees or, you know, what what have you seen as you were succeeding at something so very different? You know, I think anybody who's taken as different approach as we have to the standard way of doing things probably goes through the same sequence. The world tells you you're insane, you're crazy, you can't do this, it won't work, it's too this, it's too that, it's not enough of this, it's not enough of that. And then one day you succeed and everybody's like, well, yeah, but what you're doing is just obvious. <laughs> You know, and, and suddenly you're like, well, you're just like everybody else, you know, you, and, you know, I mean, let's, let's go back to that open office environment thing, which is just a hilarious thing to me because, you know, I've written an article that says, you know, if, if, if you, if your company is considering tearing down walls, moving to that vilified open office environment, the kind fast company magazine called it <coughs> an idea born in the mind of Satan in the deepest caverns of hell, um, and that they don't work, uh, 
you know, please write me because I have all the articles because everybody on the planet sends them to me. I just got involved in this little Twitter scuffle the other day with somebody who basically called us charlatans and, you know, they compared me to the music man. And I, you know, there's always a band playing somewhere or something like that. I got to go rewatch the movie to see what he's referring to. And, you know, everybody wants to tell us why what we do doesn't work. And then when they come see it, they're confounded. They're like, but it does work. And then they, then they ask, start asking the important questions. Why does it work here and seemingly fail everywhere else? And, and I think those are important questions. We have our opinions on why we think it works here. But I'm willing to roll up my sleeves with anybody who wants to come watch us for a week. And, and, and many have. Uh, we've actually had two PhDs do their thesis on Menlo. And spend months here studying us. And we we get great value out of those studies because, uh, you know, most organizations don't have a chance to really introspectively look at themselves and and figure out what is the magic? What, what, what is it that keeps this place going and working? And I think there's, you know, there's a hundred different things. And I'm not even sure I could ever articulate all of them. And I'm not sure I understand Menlo anymore. This is a complex adaptive system here. It's It's biology not chemistry this is uh, all the pieces fit together really well and it's a nice ecosystem and uh, so far for 17 years it's been working but yeah there's lots of uh, critics out there who say well can't work it's too expensive uh, open offices don't work people hate working there you can't you know it never worked for introverts and all that kind of stuff and we've proven all that wrong yeah uh, i love that uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i, I Truly do. You, you know, so you talk about thinking of, about joy of, you know, the, the, I guess, super end user, not just the company you're building software for, but the people who will be using the software in, in that company. And you talk about joy, cre creating a, an environment where joy can, can fost, um, thrive, you know, fostering that joy. You know, uh, th this may sound a little bit out of left field, but a, a recent guest, uh, Tomas Rumakari, um, he's a violinist. You know, musician from Finland, and he was talking about uh, aligning his life behind inspiration, and you know things either inspire him or they don't, and making sure that all the pieces created this environment of inspiration for him, and and even to the point of making business decisions around joy. You know, not not just the the numbers and cents on the spreadsheet, but would this opportunity create joy for him? How have you been able to use or have you been able to use, you know, that that idea of joy around specific business decisions beyond simply the environment? Oh, yeah, no, no question. I mean, it drives everything we do. Uh, we have this crazy mission statement. You know, when you pick mission statements, our belief is you should pick that North Star that you'll never get to, uh, but it will guide every decision you make. And uh, it is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. That, that's uh, kind of ambitious there, Rich. Yes. <laughs> we will never get there. And, but here's what's neat about it. Because now it drives a bunch of stuff that's very counterintuitive for business. Right. Because you think we, we've crafted this very special process here and, and, and it works. I, I can I could give you all kinds of data as to how much proof we have that what we do works and, and works in the sense of just inspires all of us to keep going because it's worked so well. 
And so you'd think, oh man, that's that's interesting, Rich. You guys got a secret sauce. You you keep it to yourself, right? It's like a trade secret. Like, no, no, we share it ubiquitously with the world. And people will ask us, well, that's dumb. Why do you do that? Why don't you keep it a secret? Keep it to yourself. And we look back to the mission and say, look at our mission. End human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. You think our little 60-person team here could do that all by itself? I don't think so. So we teach the world. Anybody, any willing, uh, you know, students who come here can spend, you know, a day to a week learning from us, reading the books. We are utterly transparent. You can come again and again and again, and we will teach you. We will answer all your questions. We will try as hard as we can to arm you to go out in the world and end some version of suffering in your part of the world. And if, and we've done that repeatedly over 17 years. So we take this crazy sort of anti-Silicon Valley view, I would say, of we're just going to be completely transparent with how we do things, why we do them the way we do it, how it works, what we've learned in the last year, uh, and give it away. This abundance philosophy, because our mission is to end it in the world, and we know we can't do it all by ourselves, so we're going to arm others to help us. So where is it that those who ignore joy... I mean, because, you know, you, you've got a, a living case for it. You said, what, 17 years uh, in, in this organization. You, you've shared it with others. People keep coming back, so I'm assuming it works when they take it out and, and, and apply it. What is it that those who ignore joy don't understand or just don't know? You know, I think in, in my world, in the software world, there's a lot of attitude, uh, and it's been there kind of forever. And uh, it is it you know, what we do is easy. Uh, you know, all the problems have been solved. It's just snapping together Lego pieces and, and, you know, and quite frankly, designing and building software is just plain old everyday hard work, like everything else anybody does in the world. And, um, and so if you're not willing to sign up for hard work, if you think it's a snap of your fingers and everything is easy, uh, you're doomed. And so I will tell you, we're probably a living, breathing example of that. Uh, I, I think it was a, a Will Rogers comment uh, way back when, when he said, you know, I, I left home at 18, convinced my father was the stupidest man on earth. I came back 10 years later and was amazed at how much he'd learned. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and this happens here at Menlo, right? People come in when they're, when they're young, they're idealistic, you know, they're starting a new business and they're like, ah. Oh, need all this stuff Menlo does or just you know they're you know they're they're working too hard at it we can do the easy thing and then they come back 10 years later and they're like man you guys are so smart now you know I wish I'd met you 10 years ago like well you actually did and we haven't changed a bit oh yeah yeah but it was different then like no no it wasn't but you're different now and you've had the experience where things you tried failed miserably and you kept you know what happens when you fail in business typically you just double your bet Right. You just double down you, and you keep chasing that failure and either the company goes out of business or all the leadership gets fired or there's a whole bunch of people who get really cynical and despondent for a long period of time. And then one day what we do suddenly looks obvious because we built everything to deal with all the problems, quite frankly, that I suffered from in the first 17 years of my career before building them. Rich, this has been uh, fantastic. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I do want to respect your time here. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you were hoping I would ask you about? Or 
You know, I think a lot of people want to know, you know, wherever they're at in their journey, how would I get started? You know, where, where would I begin? And it, it sounds like you and I uh, are similarly wired to seek out experts in the world, read their books and that sort of thing. And I would certainly encourage all of your listeners simply, if they're not already, they probably are, to become readers to start filling your head with the ideas of others. That's how I got my start. And I had a lot of books that inspired me. So if you're not reading now, start tomorrow. It's easy. Go buy a book, download it, borrow one from the library. It's a very low cost way to get back into student mode again. But my fundamental encouragement uh, to your listeners is if you're stuck in a place at work or in your career or in your business that you started, um, Move from an area of contemplation to an area of action. And the simple phrase we use here at Menlo is, let's run the experiment. And uh, this has changed everything for us. We've done crazy things based on somebody saying, you know, because you know what happens in a workplace, Brock. You, know, you bring a new idea in from a book you read or somebody hears this podcast. And, and, and you bring it to somebody who hasn't read what you've read or heard what you've heard. And they look at you and go, oh, that won't work here. You know, that's not us. That's against policy. HR won't approve that. And I want to arm your audience with one simple phrase. Look them in the eye and say, I get it. But let's try stuff. Let's run the experiment. And if you move from that, uh, you know, uh, organization that's contemplating everything and, you know, let's form a committee, let's write a policy, let's have a meeting, to one that says, let's try something and see what happens. I think you'll be amazed at how much uh, difference you can make tomorrow. Nice. Um, yeah, I've, it, it is amazing once you get it out of that mindset of it has to succeed into the mindset of let's just give it a shot. Um, and, and, and the word experiment basically says, oh yeah, about 50% of experiments don't work, don't they? Okay. So if we, if we try and it doesn't work, we're going to be okay. Yeah. You know, and, and I would suggest small, simple, inexpensive experiments. You know, the, the first time our team said, hey, I think we should do stand-up desks. Well, if you know anything about office furniture, stand-up desks can get pretty expensive. Yeah. And one of our team members was like, yeah, whatever. They took a chair without wheels and put it up on a table, put a board on top of the chair, put the computer on top of the board. And within five seconds, they had the first stand-up desk. Didn't cost a thing. I uh, love that spirit. Um, just go for it. You know, you, you mentioned reading and you know, you've written, written a couple of books. You had Chief Joy Officer, which I believe just came out and Joy yes. Inc. So if someone were to say, okay, I'm going to read and I love what Rich is saying and which book should they start with? Joy Inc. Well, I, or Chief <laughs> Joy Officer. Yeah, I, I would clearly, uh, if, you know, I think Joy Inc. Uh, feeds well into Chief Joy Officer. Joy Inc. is about the overall workplace culture here. And then Chief Joy Officer is about the leadership culture. So I think it, it, there's, you know, the books were written to be independent of one another, of course. But if you really want the full picture, I would suggest reading them in that order. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then in the back of both of those books, Brock, I have what I call recommended teachers which are just lists of books that have influenced our thinking. And so I would certainly encourage you to take a look at those. Um, 
I am very careful though around book recommendations with anyone. And it is simply, this is my encouragement to your audience around books in general. Seek out people you know, you trust, you like, you admire, you respect, and ask them what books they're reading. And then go crack into those books, you know, go down to Barnes and Noble, you know, look at the preview pages online or something like that. And if the subject grabs you, read it. If it doesn't, set it aside. It's probably not right for you right now. You know, the relationship between reader and author is a very personal one. And the books that spoke to me at a particular time were probably where my head was at, where my heart was at at that moment. And they might not speak to your eyes. So people might see a book I recommend and go, eh, it didn't do anything for me. There's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with me. It just wasn't the right book for you at that moment. Uh, but I would just get into that spirit of kind of running experiments with books. Read the first 10 or 20 pages. If you can't put it down, you've found the right book for you. I like that thought that it's not the right book for you right now. Yep. Um, yeah, and I can certainly echo that from my my own experience of books that I thought were eh, okay. I reread five years later, and it was oh, well, like you were saying earlier. You know, where was this book? You know, five years ago. Five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so my two last questions for you here as we wrap up, Rachel. One is, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, online I'm a Menlo Prez, uh, P R E Z M E N L O. P-R-E-Z on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, our website just newly launched, uh, so we're pretty proud of it, uh, MenloInnovations.com. And uh, I would encourage anyone who's in the Ann Arbor, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan area or just wants to come see us, come visit. Nice. Nice. And, and my last question, I always ask this, and it is just, how can people help you? How can the listeners help you? What's your ask for them, Rich? Yeah, our hope here at Menlo since our beginning is to inspire the world to big ideas, to changes within their own environment. So if if simply through this talk, uh, I have encouraged listeners to try some new things and, and make changes in their world for the positive, write me, tell me about them. Uh, we get inspired. We get joy from those stories that come back to us. So just tell us what you're working on. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Rich. You bet. Thanks for listening to today's show. I am always curious, what information, what inspiration, what ideas did you take from today's show that you are going to put to action in your business, in your side hustle, in your career, in your life? How are you going to use this information, these ideas, this inspiration to help you move forward? Let me know on Twitter, at Brock Edwards. You can, of course, post on the website, brockedwards.com, where, where all these episodes are housed. Or you can just email me directly at imperfectactionpodcast at gmail.com. Please let me know. Would love to hear how you're putting these ideas into action. Just a